So today we will be joined by Dr. Talia Simangan, a former work colleague, a mentor and a friend of mine. And she will be sharing about starting uh, the career after your postgraduate degrees. So, hello Dalia, can you tell us more about yourself? Hello Leticia and hello Isa. Thank you so much for inviting me to your uh, podcast. It's a pleasure to be joining you and um, sharing some of the ideas about this transition from being a PhD student to early career. Um, about myself, I'm an associate professor at Hiroshima University. Um, I teach uh, global governance and peacebuilding case studies, and I do research on uh, peace and security issues, and recently on international relations in the Anthropocene. So Dalia, first of all, welcome again to Endless Possibilities podcast, and thank you as well for uh, joining with us. And my next follow-up question, I guess, is um, what was your bachelor's degree um, and then your master's and PhD? Because we will eventually go into all of this as we tackle your early career life. Yeah, sure. Uh, I forgot to mention that I'm originally from the Philippines. So oh. I did my bachelor's in sociology. All right. <laughs> I did my bachelor's in sociology from the Philippines, from, from the University of the Philippines, and, it, and then I did my master's in international relations at the International University of Japan, so that's in Japan, and then I did my PhD in uh, international relations at the Australian National University. So I would say, um, even though I did sociology in my undergrad, um, my, you know, my international re relations research is very much informed by the methodological uh, skills that I have acquired as an undergrad student. Yeah, that is very exciting to hear because we almost always have people on the what's the natural science field. So it's always uh, yeah. uh, an exciting moment to have people from the social science field. So we get, we will have a lot of questions, I think. <laughs> uh, but my first follow-up question, but not necessarily about the field, but since you did your PhD in Australia, in Australia is it considered a, a, a student program or worker program like uh, in United States, like you're basically working? Yeah, I was thinking of this because when I was a PhD student there, at least within my institution, uh, we were treated as colleagues, you know, by professors. Um, mm. So even though we are PhD student, and I remember um, mm. one of the first um, messages that somehow uh, left a mark in my mind as, mm -hmm. uh, when I started my PhD was that um, you are a PhD student, but you are our colleagues. So wow. that's something I think that was striking. But we have to consider also like um, legally speaking, because mm. I had a student visa. So ah, I think okay. I am a... <laughs> I am a student like okay. legal, within the legal frameworks in Australia, but within the department, it was really collegial. So uh, maybe a little bit sensitive. So how about the, your stipend? Did you get a stipend and was it considered a scholarship, a salary? Uh, how would they call it? Um, because I was under scholarship mm -hmm. um, provided by the university. Mm -hmm. So the stipend is a part of my scholarship so it was not being taxed uh, so it was not a salary 
something like. not a salary yeah um, a salary that you have to give uh, your tax contributions right okay. so i think if it's not tax then it's not salary mm. yeah so in a way it is like the same as our phd leticia because we receive Although scholarship. the scholarship is not from our university, mm. but it's from uh, the Japanese government, and we were also not taxed at mm -hmm. all from that um, that scholarship. So, but I guess the the treatment between either you are uh, as a PhD, you are a student or a colleague or a worker, mm. maybe it's somehow related to the culture. Mm. I'm not so sure. So, Dalia had experience, even though masters in Japan, but. In your research group, they had uh, PhD students. So what was the big difference between, or what it was there any difference between how was the interaction between the PhD students in Japan and mm. PhD students in Australia? I I couldn't tell because uh, my university when I was a master's student it was only a university for masters. Program. Ah, I so see. I see. I really couldn't tell. It's very recent that they just opened a program for uh, PhDs, but at that time, um, so we were all master's students, small university, private university. So I really cannot mm. compare like my experience, yeah. Okay. Between uh, yeah between that university and also the university where I did my PhD. All right. Mm. And just to clarify, the the people who like who mentioned about you being their colleagues, they are the, your professors, right? Yes. Mm. Oh, I see, I see. Okay, because we could never hear that in a, oh, at in least a Japanese me uh, and a maybe Leticia. Yeah, we have never, yeah, we have never heard about us being a colleague. We are the students. I completely mm. understand what I said, what you said earlier about <laughs> probably this is cultural difference, right? Mm. Um, mm. Now at Hiroshima University, although I, I also, I, I'm not sure if that is the case everywhere here mm. in my university, but it's completely understandable that there's a little bit of hierarchy, right? Yes. Uh, between mm. professors and students yeah, within the programs. So, Dalia, did you have any work experience prior to going to either master's or PhD? Yeah, so after I did my bachelor's, um, uh, I used to work in the Philippines before my master's. Um, I was a researcher for the Philippine military and then uh, one of the, also a researcher for one of the presidential commissions in the Philippines. And then, um, so that was before my master's. And then after my master's, I went back again to the Philippines and then I became a trading analyst for the government's energy sector, which is a little bit very different from, yes. from what yeah. I studied. Um, but, you know, it's for... And it's an income generating position okay. while I was looking yeah. for um, for PhD programs mm -hmm. and for scholarships. And um, during that time, I also had a very short uh, stint just to, you know, feel like oh, I did my master's in international relations. So I think I have to do something related to that. So I did a very short uh, stint teaching um, international relations to undergraduate students um, before I started my PhD. And the job that you had immediately after um, your bachelor's degree is also related to the field of sociology, right? I, uh, I assume. I mean, it's related to the field of sociology in the sense that the research uh, methods that I used as a researcher, I, mm -hmm. I, I use mm -hmm. them like based on what I learned as an undergrad student. But this is, I think, I also want to emphasize because um, I would say that um, my experience 
working for this government agency is really informed my interest as a PhD student, my research oh. interest. Because, yeah, so when I was when I was a researcher, uh, I got uh, exposed to foreign diplomacy, mm. to you know negotiations of the Philippines, and also to policy research. Um, and just the bilateral uh, relations, bilateral agreements of the Philippines with other countries. So th that really picked my interest uh, with regard to international relations. Although in retrospect, I think it was not really intentional, but I think that exposure somehow, yeah, picked my interest. And then related to that as well, because um, in foreign relations and international relations, there's always this peace and security dynamics. And this is my area of research, which is uh, peace and security, peace and conflict. So I think that also very much informed the line of research that I'm doing right now. Wow. So the motivation to go to master's and PhD were uh, connected intentionally because of this experience after the master's, uh, the, the work experience after the master's not the masters, the bachelors? The choice of uh, doing masters in international relations very much informed by my experience of doing this research that is related to foreign affairs, diplomacy, and so on, yes. Wow, that's so yeah, interesting that your first job after bachelors was kind of the one pushing you into uh, researching and doing the postgrad. Yeah, just very brief question and out of curiosity, how were you able to get this kind of job opportunities as an undergrad? So right after I graduated my... Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, how did... What? <laughs> I'm too old. I'm too old now. Like I forgot to how remember. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> to um, I knew, I, I really knew that I want to do research work um, after my undergrad. So... I was really looking for uh, yeah for research work, and I actually I'm sorry I'm sorry Isa I don't remember how I found mm. out about that opportunity, but I just remember that I want to do research work mm. <laughs> after mm. yeah and, mm -mm -mm -mm. and I applied like the usual process. So going to your the the going to your early career then after your PhD. So where and what type of position did you start? your career right that one i remember because it's okay. a little bit more recent yes. <laughs> so um, uh, after i uh, completed my phd and you know this leticia because we started at the same time i i started my right after my phd i moved to japan here in japan to do my postdoctoral uh, fellowship under the JSPS uh, postdoctoral research program. So that's uh, what I did after my PhD. And how did I find it? Um, I found it through, believe it or not, through Twitter. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember, I really, rem this is really very clear still in my mind because I remember um, really looking for positions everywhere that I could, like um, being, uh, subscribing to mailing lists, um, just, you know, this job sites as well. Everywhere, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. So in LinkedIn, I, I sorry, in Twitter, I remember just uh, searching keying in the term like postdoctoral or postdoc or fellowship something like that and that's how i found out about this probably some account maybe the unu account or 
some other account that tweeted or retweeted it and that's how I found it. And yeah, and then I applied for that position. So interesting to use Twitter. And even 2017, I think, 2016, the application was in 16. Yes, 2016. Wow. I mean, I was on Twitter since mm. 2009. So. I, I was about to ask you, when did you join Twitter? Because, wow. Yeah, over a decade ago. Mm, I would never imagine to do my job hunting through Twitter, never. So how did you get this idea? I'm just like, I think I'm, I just follow a lot of people on Twitter um, mm. and people within my, especially within my field or people who do the same research stuff that I'm very much interested in. Mm. And that's why um, I'm, al I'm always on Twitter. <laughs> oh. I'm, so, and then I, I thought that if I follow these people, maybe they have some information that would be, you know, useful to me in terms of uh, potential, you know, job positions mm -hmm. or but, uh, opportunities after my PhD. So once you were there, then when you're like, it was a postdoc. So do you remember uh, some exciting or challenging aspects about that phase? Even the, the first, the part that you were looking for the position. So what you can remember that stuck in your mind and also within the position, like, okay, I'm here. I got the position uh, now. What is challenging? What is exciting to you? Can you recall? Yeah, very, very challenging. I mean, mm. you know how it is in the academic job market. Mm. Um, the really challenging part for me was uh, really dealing with uncertainty when I was looking for a position. And that's why I was very open-minded when it comes to where I can find these opportunities. And mm. other than just searching myself for myself, I even um, tried um, contacting people who can either give me some information or connect me with someone else who has information about this uh, opportunity. So I would say that it was um, because of that uncertainty, I think it pushed me to be more proactive and mm. more um, creative yeah. <laughs> in terms of searching for these opportunities. Mm. But the exciting part uh, during that time when I was uh, looking for positions. I was also um, trying trying to translate my research into practice uh, in the sense that, okay, now I have completed, I am doing this research um, before I submitted my PhD dissertation, I remember. I was already contemplating on how I can you know, make this into something that is beyond academia. Mm. And because uh, my dissertation was on peace building um, and local involvement of communities into peace building. So that uh, kind of pushed me to do something outside academia. So during that time when I was looking for a job, mm -hmm. I was also um, conceptualizing and working together with other people uh, to put up this uh, small nonprofit organization for, uh, th that is called Peace Perspectives. And um, that organization is meant to collect definitions of peace from people and then uh, work with the commun communities on how to make the, their aspirations somehow be achieved even in small ways in their communities. So I think, yeah, this, the uncertainty is the most challenging, but it also helped me um, 
yeah, do something outside academia, academia. and that is what I find very exciting. Okay. So actually connected with that, I was wondering, because you have actually our second guest on, on the social science field. So I'm always curious about what are the job market uh, opportunities or types of, uh, yeah, the typical type of jobs that uh, one can get after finishing a PhD in your field, apart from academia. Um, yeah, I think it would be uh, for international relations mm. it would be government positions government positions. Um, or uh, mm. positions in ngos or positions in international organizations in fact before uh, when i started my phd my intention was not to become an academic okay. my intention is to uh, mm. to uh, learn more you know enhance my research skills so that mm -hmm. i can work for international organizations i can work for the un so that was the intention and i think there are several non-academic opportunities mm -hmm. uh, for for available for my field okay. international relations yes but uh just a follow-up because you found uh, your first career in twitter but um, because you already have an experience studying in japan so did you already know about jsps in the past um, I don't think so. When I was a student uh, in Japan, when I was a master's student, I think I haven't encountered uh, JSPS at that time. I received a scholarship from a private company, so I was not really aware. I am curious, like for you, Leticia, how did you find that JS, that postdoctoral fellowship? Uh, actually, also through a lot of Googling and like the, mm. the Japanese uh, famous uh, and then also I think I saw that position the year before but I could not apply and then I bookmarked and then when and then I saved the the dates they would open again and then when they opened again I applied uh, but mm. I think at that time I was not so clear that it was a GSPS thing because that even though it is GSPS but they market mostly the UN part only after applying oh yes only after applying, you mm. notice that, of, oh, of, um, actually, this is a GSPS, it's GSPS. fellowship, mm -hmm. yes. Mm. Oh, how about for the, your early career stage? What was mm. the exciting part and also the challenging part? Yeah, because um, if I was dealing with uncertainty, right, while looking for a position um, during my early career uh, stage, I'm still at the earlier stage, but during that time, um, I think the challenging part was uh, dealing with my insecurities, especially um, right after my PhD. Um, and I think it's interesting because it has become like um, external challenges, right, with regard to uncertainty. And then those uh, external challenges I, can, I cannot control somehow. But then when I started my academic position, it has become more of internal challenges exactly. like within myself. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's how I think the challenging aspect transformed or changed from being a PhD student while looking for a position and then having the academic position after. Yeah, and exciting aspect is that um, 
it's exciting because uh, the position is back in Japan. <laughs> so I, I, I was really very happy to be back in Japan. I have received my scholarship for my master's uh, from mm. a private company. So I really thought, okay, um, you know, I think it's time to come back and do something also uh, uh, in Japan again. And also just being part of the UNU, United Nations University, right? Because um, we're doing research there, but at the same time, uh, Leticia, right? We're very much exposed to, you know, how uh, policy circles make their decisions or deliberate their decisions. And um, just being acquainted, I think, with um, policy experts. And that's exciting because I can somehow also connect my research with something that is uh, more policy or oriented. And then at the same time, having that time to really, you know, uh, focus on my research, uh, focus on my writing, and also just the opportunity to continue my, doing my research from what I started when I was a PhD student um, until my position. And yeah, those are exciting times, just uh, focusing on publications. Right? <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> of course, thanks to the support of JS. <laughs> <laughs> so, Adalia, uh, you, you were saying a while ago about your um, PhD student life. Um, and so I want to ask if your views as a PhD student changed during your early career experiences in Japan. Yes, it did a lot. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that time when I was a PhD, I think that time when I was a PhD student, now I realized it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the time, uh, that was the last time that I can really focus and dedicate all my energy, you know, give my heart and soul to just one research project. <laughs> and now I have to, so I miss, I really miss those times. And now I have to juggle several uh, research projects. I, I, when I was a PhD student, I didn't expect that, you know, um, an academic position would be really um, managing several research projects. And if I could, you know, go back in time, <laughs> if I could do time traveling and tell my PhD self uh, that time and. Uh, I, I would tell my PhD self to really make the most out of that time that I mm -hmm. had, uh, mm -hmm. you know, because I did uh, I did uh, my PhD for four and a half years. It's a long time, and to really make the most out of it, meaning you know, using my time to uh, really broaden and deepen my knowledge and um, about the topic that I have chosen to get acquainted with uh, people with similar interests and to reach out to experts and resource persons because I have realized this when I was a PhD student, I was, um, people are more receptive of PhD students because you're a student, okay, they are very much more willing to help you and give you information. And I remember because, uh, for example, I did this, uh, several interviews when I was a PhD student most of them would say yes to me and um, because I was a PhD student, student. So, oh a student let's help her out so, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know that okay when uh, now that in this position um, of course of course people people are still very generous of their time but um, it's not as receptive uh, I would say as yeah when I was a PhD student and also the teaching 
uh, you know, the teaching. When I was a PhD student, I didn't know that uh, we were not really prepared, right, to we were not really prepared to do teaching because we were just focusing on our research. And then I thought that, uh, okay, as if I enter a faculty uh, or a program after my PhD, then I would start learning this. But then, <laughs> no, I should have Directly. learned this earlier. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right. Imagine just designing the syllabus. I don't think we were taught. Yeah, we were not PhD at all. Students, yeah. right? But I think it's also a country thing. Because I think in the, that's why the question about what was the status of a PhD student in, your, in Australia. Mm. Because it seems like, for example, in countries like US, you it's quite impossible for you to do a PhD program without teaching. Right, th that's mm. true. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So. We, ha we, we, ha we have an option to do that, but we were not really required. So I know some of my colleagues, former other PhD students were doing teaching as a TA. So this teaching that you are saying, it's happening now, right? Not in UNU. Because I, I do not, or do, do, do you have any teaching activities in UNU? I did not remember. I think Delis considers herself early <laughs> career still, but I, it's, I don't agree I, that you're early career still. Maybe me. Okay, what is an early career, right? The Maybe three, also need we are considered two to three years after PhD. What did you say? Yeah. Two to three years. Yeah, I, I consider Ooh. early career as five years. <laughs> ah, but you you already passed five years, no? Four years. Ah, I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I still consider myself early career. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, I also want to mention, like, when I was a PhD student, I didn't know that. Um, uh, like research grant, uh, you know, proposal writing is a very important skill that I have to have honed, you know, during my student days because they are very crucial as a, in an academic position and also um, the importance of metrics and indicators um, for better or worse. Be yeah, because I remember just when I was a PhD student, for example, you publish a paper into a journal that you would like to be read by your peers, right? And all this, um, like, uh, metrics, uh, these indicators, impact factors, all this didn't really yeah. come into play at the time. Mm -hmm. And mm. now that I'm in an academic position, I'm just realizing all these things that mm. I didn't know when I was a PhD student. Wow, yeah. that actually gives me an idea. Maybe we need to create a starter pack course about uh, PhD students that would want to go to academia. So what are the things that they should know? Like even if it's like Coursera course or something like that, that would be interesting. Mm. Speaking of starter pack, mm. <laughs> it's Colors Unbound <laughs> podcast <laughs> that I am hosting. <laughs> so the, I think this is a perfect time. Yes, yes, please. That is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Scholars Unbound podcast that I am hosting, uh, I am conceptualizing right now um, a kind of um, program uh, for more of like skills oriented program to re, uh, for early for students and early career researchers. Um, those basic stuff that that you that we think they are basic, but actually they yeah. are not because yes. we were not really taught how to do them. Like 
the, mm-hmm. even you know writing an abstract for example <laughs> or which mm-hmm. conferences you have to, to attend choose, or yeah. associations you have to be a member of mm-hmm. so all this um, so for your listeners um, if you're if you enjoy this episode <laughs> and if you enjoy Leticia and Isa talking to I am sure you also enjoy the Scholars Unbound podcast where we talk about you know the many issues surrounding uh, um, surrounding our experiences in academia as women as uh, scholars from the global south as first gen scholars so all these um, issues we talk about there and not just talk about them but find ways on how you know to make ourselves uh, people uh, people of color for example and those from developing countries to be more visible in academia mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, t- good timing because Perfect. I always mention, I think I joked even with Isa, or even with Dalia, that to, the Endless Possibility podcast seems like a younger sister, like a very wild sister of the Scholars <laughs> of Bound podcast. Because if you enjoy this podcast, for sure you will enjoy the Scholars of Bound podcast. Yeah, and you can start with Lit. You can start with Leticia's um, episode because Leticia was my guest <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in that episode yeah. about finding opportunities. Finding so, opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> if you want something very structured with a lot of like, uh, uh, how can I say, practical information that you can use and like very juicy topics. So please have a look. Uh, we will have all of the details of the podcast and Dalia's information on the show notes. So but I think the endless possibilities, my, I, I am the younger sister. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, in terms of behavior, we behave like, like a very like adolescent behavior. And then the scholars are bound is like, okay, proper, I'm on Born the university. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We are all over the place. <laughs> school and then university behavior in that, in that uh, sense. Yeah, which True. which reflects two types of environment in academia, right? <laughs> True. True. Yeah. True. So to close it up, uh, can you say like uh, some of the most important aspects for the listeners to take home when they are uh, in this transition stage uh, between uh, like a, a PhD, a graduating from PhD, or finishing their postgraduate studies and entering into the early career? Uh, stage of environment can you think about something that one should really take home and yes uh, i think great great question and this is something just coming out of my own experience as well that maybe some of the listeners would find useful or not so um, just um, something that i would like to share and that is it's okay to change um, your direction within academia or outside academia and uh, think of the transition as like testing the waters. Um, if you are, you, if your heart and soul again mm-hmm. is really in academia, mm-hmm. I think that transition process is uh, very important for you to see for yourself and and think uh, and think ahead of what you, you will plan after that transition. So, and if you change your direction after that reflection, uh, it's totally fine because it's really up to you, right? And then the second thing is the importance of having an academic mission, and this I realized only later. 
and because now now being uh, faced by this so many responsibilities i realized that it's important that i have this academic mission and it's uh, it's my academic mission like what are the uh, tools that i use for my research and what is the purpose of my research and what is the topic of my research compacted into one statement wow. so i really suggest mm. for example my academic mission is i use critical inquiry and qualitative methods to study various dimensions of post-conflict reconstruction to inform peace building research and practice wow. so this is just in one statement mm -hmm. uh, of course I, it took time for me to think about this uh, statement and then write it down but i really suggest that uh, especially if you're in this transition and even if you're a student to think about your academic mission write it down uh, and then put it somewhere visible mm. um, yeah because I think mm. it's really helpful um, and then because if it's somewhere visible then you can review it and uh, you know if you're being bombarded by all these responsibilities requests and all this you can always go back to your academic mission and is this something that fulfills my academic mission and then you can review it also of course it's not mm -hmm. set in stone yes. you can review your academic mission you can reflect on it as you go along your career and then you can also revise it but what's important is that if you revise it it's not a revision that is based from outside that is externally imposed it's a revision based on your self-reflection so that's the second one and the third one is um, don't be too hard on yourself the transition would be very very difficult uh, with all this insecurity imposter syndrome True. and all these things um, of course we need to acknowledge also the institutional level issues within academia that we often talk mm. about um, and you also talk about in your previous episodes um, this equity issues barriers to publications and sometimes um, although not everywhere the lack of uh, institutional support to mm. us and sustainable support and um, let's be reminded that we are really capable of the projects that we'd like to take <laughs> and the connections that we want to make and that uh, we are deserving of the opportunities and rewards that come our way and um, yeah I think just uh, we don't need to be in charge uh, um, we need to be um, in charge of our career right and I know it's very easy to say and very sometimes very difficult to do because i understand that we have to also consider what is being demanded from us right mm -hmm. by our supervisors um, by our universities but um and yeah but i'm not saying that it should be all self-serving mm. that we have to be selfish all the time and just disregard the the others and disregard the value of uh, being a team member but all these things considered it's really important to be always reminded that it is your career after all mm -hmm. if your career is the career that is um, largely informed by your academic mission mm -hmm. and not someone else's then it will be the career that you would like to see yourself in That's where true. you will thrive you know as a researcher scholar uh, mm. teacher <laughs> collaborator and yeah just a, a member of society so thank you so much Dalia for lending us your time and insights into what the early career can come about and uh, um, unfold 
And for more information about Dr. Dalia and her platform, please follow uh, Dalia at uh, in Twitter, of course, uh, at Dalia underscore CS. And listen, connect, and support the Scholars Unbound Initiative. All the links will be shared in the episode description. Thank you, Dalia.